you're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King. Welcome back to Asia Tonight. It's time for your business update. And the German government has agreed on a compromise over a controversial Chinese investment in a port in Hamburg. Der chinesische Staatskonzern Costco darf sich nach Informationen der Süddeutschen Zeitung unter Auflagen an einem Containerterminal im Hamburger Hafen beteiligen. Germany has decided to bend the knee before China. Talk of China being deemed as a systemic rival has obviously been discounted by Germany's latest decision to open up its largest seaport to Chinese investment. As you could hear there, today we are examining the big shakeup of port ownership in Germany, which we at the Low Star believe has wider implications for liner shipping. We'll be discussing why the current owners of terminals are so keen to sell stakes. This is the German family silver after all. Why are container lines so desperate for controlling interests in these northern range terminals? Is this about hinterland links, local cargo or transshipment business? And taking a wider view, what do the latest deals say about Germany's and Europe's approach to foreign ownership of maritime and shipping infrastructure? especially ownership by companies linked to the Chinese state. And of course, last but not least, we'll be looking at what these changes mean for many of you, the forwarders and shippers that rely on German ports and the shipping services that call there. Hello, I'm Mike King. This is a Lodestar podcast, which is available on your platform of choice and on the Lodestar.com and Lodestar Premium, where you can find coverage of these stories and a million more. Joining us later on will be Anne Tiedemann, head analyst at Alpha Liner, and we'll be looking at how all of this impacts container line strategy, but explaining the meat of these issues and exploring the politics and the strategy of all this jostling for position and for investment. I have joining me today two journalists who have been covering these stories for quite some time. First up is a regular on the Lodestar podcast when he's not off doing his boat up again. A big welcome to the Lodestar's managing editor. It's Gavin Van Mol. Good afternoon, Mike. How are you, sir? I'm very good. Thank you. Welcome back. And, and joining him today is Sebastian Riemann, editor-in-chief of DVZ. Hello, Sebastian. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Hello, Mike. Hi, Gavin. Good to be on the podcast. Thanks a lot for inviting me. You're very welcome. Sebastian, before we discuss some of the big deals at Germany's box port this year, can you first give us a little bit of context where are the biggest container ports in Germany and roughly what size of ships can they take? This is for maybe someone who's not so familiar with the European port network and system. Yeah, I would say we have like three main container ports in Germany. It's, it's Hamburg, which has about 8 million, 8.5 million TU throughput per year. Then we have Bremerhaven. It's the second biggest port at the River Weser, while Hamburg is at the River Elbe. And that has about 4.5 to 5 million TU. And then we have a third one, uh, Wilhelmshaven, the so-called Jade Visa port. And that has about 700,000 TU. It's always fluctuating quite a lot. And essentially all of them can take all the big container ships, right? So, I mean, we have some draft issues in, well, Bremerhaven and Hamburg with the rivers there. But at least for Hamburg, that has been solved uh, Quite well, and in the Bremerhaven, they're still waiting for the draft of the River Visa to be deepened. That's still an issue, and 
sometimes here in Germany, these infrastructure projects take some time, unfortunately. But uh, well, everybody's waiting for that, actually. So obviously, Germany is uh, Europe's largest economy. So these ports are absolutely critical to its success. How are they set up in terms of ownership? What's the structure, landlord terminal sort of operator system, is it, in Germany? Because I think this is relevant to what we'll discuss later, particularly as I'm thinking forward to why current owners might have incentives to sell off stakes. Yeah, it's a, actually, it's a very big issue these days in Germany because um, the landlords, they have the infrastructure, so the case, and they have the railroads that are on the port areas, all that kind of stuff that's owned by the landlords, which are essentially the cities or, so to speak, in some instances, the cities are also the, the states in Germany. Hamburg and Bremen are also the cities, but they're also states in Germany. So they are owned by them. And the superstructure, like the terminals, the cranes, all that kind of stuff, that is owned by the uh, terminal providers. And uh, we have a big issue and a big discussion about the um, financing of these things. Maybe one, one number, the German state, so the federal government is giving 38 million euros per year for all the German ports at the moment. It's a very big issue because if we see like Rotterdam or the other big ports, they are supposed to get much more money from their federal governments and everybody's really hustling for m more money here in Germany now. Sorry, can I just come in there? I mean, 38 million euros a year seems like peanuts. It is. Yeah, that's a big issue. I mean... We had, a, we had a national conference on that just a couple of weeks ago, and that was very clearly argued with the federal government that if we are an export uh, country, if we are an export economy, there has to be invested a lot more in, into the, the German ports, right? And they have a number of about a billion per year in mind. They know they won't get it. So now they are like at 400 million per year. That's pretty much the near-term goal now they really want to reach. But it would still be 10 times more than we than the ports get these days, right? So a lot of money. So there's a clear gap between what they're getting from the state and what they actually need to invest to be competitive, which obviously is where people might turn to private investment. Gav, if we can, just before we look at some of these deals, why are these strategic assets in Germany? Why are they so attractive potential investors? Just give us some sort of global relevance to this. Well, I mean, I think you, you touched on the primary reason is, you know, it's the biggest economy in Europe. And it's, you know, enormous. And the sort of numbers that Sebastian was talking about there in terms of TEU volumes, that's at least double the size of the UK in terms of container movements, I would suggest. But also it's worth remembering that, that traditionally, particularly Bremerhaven and Hamburg have acted as crucial transshipment points for Scandinavia, the Baltics, and prior to February 2022, Russia. So there's a historical role, both as a gateway to the German economy, but also as a key hub for the surrounding countries. I'm glad to see all those years at Port Development International and Cargo System paid off, Gav. You've got, you know this. It's totally in my blood. <laughs> Encyclopedic. I, I dream transshipment. <laughs> okay. Let's turn, let's turn to one of these deals, Hamburg. MSC, the world's largest container line, has received multiple blessings from various people to take a 49.9 stake in Hamburger Hafen und Logistik, which I was desperate to say, HHLA to the rest of you. Sebastian will tell us how the locals call it in a moment. But HHLA operates around 75% of container terminal capacity at Hamburg, and it also has terminals in Odessa in Ukraine, Tallinn and Trieste in Estonia and in Italy. This deal with HHLA and MSE, it's, it's highly political. 
And Gav, as you said in your articles, it was always going to set off a game of musical chairs in the in the world of transport and logistics, affecting not only carriers, but also ports, terminals and users. Explain a little bit more, Gav. What's at stake here and what's the current state of play? I think if, if we just take it from MSC's perspective at the moment, so hitherto, MSC has been it's German operations, and, and Sebastian, please correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but what I've seen is that German operations have been centred on Bremerhaven, where they have a joint venture with the local terminal operator there, Eurogates, which, by the way, also which operates the remaining capacity in Hamburg. And I think one of the, the very surprising things was that it had decided with the HHLA deal that it had, part of it was to guarantee volumes of a million TEU into Hamburg. And of course, that raised the question over what it would continue to do in Bremerhaven. I mean, I was one who assumed that it would it would simply let its lease at that terminal lapse. However, that was then renewed for a further 25 years after it had submitted its bid for HHLA. So it's very interesting to see what its port strategy in Germany is going to be, assuming that the, the Hamburg deal goes through. Sebastian, um, how has this all played out in Germany in terms of you covering it as the media? Was it secretive? Yeah, very much. And it's, it's pretty much the, the story of this fall all over Germany in the trade press and everything. I mean, it was, it was like the 13th of September was a memorable day, I think, for a lot of journalists. Because, I mean, I got a message from the speaker of the Department for Economics in the Hamburg government. And that something big is coming up like at four o'clock in the morning and everybody had to, to rush to town hall at eight o'clock in the morning. There was a press conference coming up and then the deal was announced. And uh, from then it just got crazy pretty much. And it, it still takes on, right? Pretty much every day something new pops up, some, some new speculation, somebody is arguing on it and everything. And I mean, it's really a big thing because I think nobody really understands the structure of the deal. It really now maybe evolves some more insight on that. But everybody asks himself, why is MSC eligible to take over 49.9% of the whole company? And in Germany, it's called HALA. So some German for our listeners, H-H-L-A. <laughs> and not just like everybody else, like Costco or Hapark getting a stake in one of the terminals, like a traditional dedicated terminal, right? And so this is a whole new setup and the Hamburg government much argued, well, we had to do something structurally new to really get the port of Hamburg. And as you mentioned in your introduction, it's like 75% of container throughput in Hamburg is from, from HHLA to really get that up again. Because the last couple of years, the other big European ports like Rotterdam, Antwerp, they were still growing and, and Hamburg especially. And then also the other German ports, they, they lost on the throughput numbers the last couple of years. What's the pushback been about? I mean, how has the debate been framed between those people who obviously like HHLA, they want the investment, they want Hamburg to be a competitive port, which they obviously, they, you said earlier, they're not getting that money from the government. But then who's pushing back against this? Is this about who owns German assets? Yeah, I mean, the employees, of course, it's a big issue for the employees. They don't know what's going to happen. So there were protests, uh, demonstrations here in Hamburg, a couple of them. They are really not knowing what's going to happen to them, what happens about their jobs. Then on the other end, of course, in the first couple of weeks, it was Hapag Lloyd, it was Mr. Kuhner, it was Mr. Eckelmann from Eurogate, who were all, well, not very much understanding what's going on there and why they weren't 
asked to invest in HHLA. It seems that there were some discussions between Hapag Lloyd and the city of, of Hamburg regarding an investment, but as much as is known, Hapag always wanted a majority share, and that's not what the city of Hamburg wanted to sell. They wanted to still have a bit of a, of a majority, even if it's only two percentage points, right? And just to clarify there, so Klaus Michael Kuhner, this is a very famous German billionaire. He's the, the Kuhner in the Kuhner and Nagel. And, and what's his relationship to the other big player here, or not big player in this case, is, is German container line Hapag Lloyd. Please explain either Gav or, or Sebastian, how does Klaus Michael Kuhner fit into this particular equation? And why isn't he involved a bit more? This is where it gets really interesting because you're just talking a whole patchwork of, of different shareholdings. So Klaus Michael Kuhner, a proud Hamburg native, despite the fact that Kuhner Nagel's headquartered in Switzerland. Klaus Michael Kuhner sees the largest shareholder in Hapag Lloyd. I mean, it's worth noting also that the city of Hamburg itself is a, a 16.7 odd percent shareholder in Hapag as, as 16.9%, well. 16.9%, I think it is. In, yes. 16.9. Thank you, Mike. Yes. But as we've discovered, you know, these little naught fractional percentages are actually quite important, right? The whole deal is hinging on a 0.2% swing. So, yeah, my understanding is that Klaus Michaelkin has been very keen to, I mean, he's been a long proponent. I think DBZ has certainly reported, you know, his pronouncements on that he thinks HHLA and HAPAG are a sort of a very obvious terminal operator carrier tile. I mean, it's really obvious, given the fact that the city of Hamburg has a significant shareholding in both companies. So I'd be fascinated to hear why Hapag was sort of bypassed in this way, Sebastian. I, there was a press briefing given by Hapag shortly before their results. And Rolf Haben Janssen, the chief executive, was asked about the deal. And he basically was looking at it in the rearview mirror then. Do you know, he gave the impression of someone who'd been blindsided. Sebastian, what's the view from Germany on this? It's not like Hapag Lloyd is short of cash. I, I think Klaus Michael Kuhner's got a few bob as well, hasn't he? Yeah, sure. But I mean, I think that what would have been obvious would be if, if Hapag would take a share, right? They are the biggest customer in, in the port of Hamburg. They have a share already in the container terminal at Werder, which is owned by HHLA. So they are very close with the port of Hamburg. But as it is said by the, the federal government in Hamburg, it seems that they always wanted a majority, and that's just what the federal government didn't want to give them. And so that's how early they were informed and how long the discussions between these two parties maybe dragged on. I think nobody really knows, right? But as you just mentioned, Gavin, I think for Hapag, it's now in the rearview mirror. It's just through. And now, I mean, it's, it's MSC. Everybody assumes and expects that this, this deal will go through. And eventually, yeah, well, it will be MSC owning 49.9% of HHLA. And what is discussed a lot here in, in Germany in the logistics industry is what is their interest in HHLA? Is it only the terminals or is it the hinterland network with Metrans? It's a very, very good rail freight company, which is owned by HHLA. And a lot of people think that was their main goal to get a grip on that, actually, because I mean, MSC is investing heavily in, in Europe in the hinterland networks these days, right? It's not only Hamburg, it's Italy, it's Spain with, with their shares and other rail freight companies there. So that's what everybody really thought about the background of the deal. And I guess MSC hasn't commented on this to explain its strategy? No, not really. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> not really. 
as always, actually, they are not very open in general. But I mean, I think it's obvious, at least the big strategy really evolves now that they are really looking at the hinterland networks. If you take a look into their, I mean, they don't publish too much. There were a couple of numbers just popping up uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, by accident, which is interesting. They have a sustainability report. And in that, you could read some things about their strategy regarding hinterland networks, all that kind of stuff with Medlock, with their, their daughter company. And it really seems because of the this whole sustainability, environmental issues, they are really taking a, a bet on Ray Fright a lot, actually. Yeah, I think you were very generous there saying that MSE don't communicate very <laughs> often. Very often each century could have worked as well. Uh, <laughs> no comment, isn't it? Yeah. I, I, I totally agree with Sebastian there. I think Medlog is the absolute key to this thing. I mean, our sources around MSC have told us, you know, for the best part of a year now that, that Medlog was going to be, you know, that's where their focus for growth is. Now, you know, they've had this massive fleet expansion plan over the last couple of years, they've been building up their port network through their port operating subsidiary terminal link. And it's very big now, you're right. They're a proper serious international operator, which, which made, you know, when you look at coming to Hamburg and investing in Hamburg, and I'd go back to what I was saying earlier on about their existing operation at Bremerhaven, it was like, do they really need to invest in Hamburg? But if the strategy is to develop Medlog, and then you look at Harlers, HHLA's, Mitrans, rail intermodal subsidiary, they're basically acquiring a ready-made European overland network. I mean, that's the real jewel in the crown from the MSE perspective once you sort of look beyond the port operations. Well, if anyone from the Aponte family is listening, you are more than welcome to come on for an interview. <laughs> Just finally, before we park this particular deal and move on to the next one, what timelines are we looking at? We're assuming the MSE deal to buy this almost 50% of HHLA goes through. When does this happen? Well, I mean, the, the big next date is 4th of uh, December. That's when the um, period for the shareholders to approve the deal, to sell their shares to MSE is ending. It's the second term of this whole uh, period. And then afterwards, early next year, it's going to be the Hamburg Parliament who has to decide on the deal. That could become interesting. It's, it's hard to, to judge these days how that will really come out. But eventually, I mean, with the, the Hamburg government having a majority in the, in the Hamburg Parliament, will probably go through there as well. And then it well, takes a normal time with all the competition authorities and all that kind of stuff having to give their green lights on the deal. And we're probably talking about later next year, that it will eventually really be through, I guess. Gav, you've got something to add there. I think it's probably just worth pointing out to the, the, the existing shareholding structure of, of HHLA. So Hamburg State owns 67%. Is that correct, Sebastian? Yeah, I just have to I have to calculate now. Yeah, yeah, it could be about that. Yeah. About that. And then the remainder, so let's say 33%, is traded on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange, right? So that's publicly traded shares. So it's quite, it's, it's an interesting thing. If when you look at that's what the existing shareholding structure is. So in order to get to a situation where the Hamburg government municipality owns 50.1% uh, and MSC owns 49.9%, obviously Hamburg has to sell some of its shareholding to MSC with the remainder bought from private shareholders, right? And that's at 16 euros 75 per share. Now, I believe that the, the initial tent offer closed on the 20th of November. 
And as far as I understand it, MSC needs to acquire 90% of the 33% that's in private investors' hands in order to compulsorily force, squeeze out is the actual technical term, squeeze out the remaining shareholders. But so far, I think only, and I'm really, I know this is my reading from DVZ, right? So I'm, I'm really going on what you guys have been writing, but I think only about 4% of the private shareholders have actually have accepted the MSC offer. Yeah, it's about 4%, but uh, through this way, but they overall they have about 14% because they just bought about 10% on the open market, pretty much with a little different way. And, and I mean, overall, as you mentioned, they need these, they have 84% now with the city of Hamburg together. Yeah. Uh, if you take the 14 plus the 67 or 66, and um, then they have a couple of percents left until the 90% uh, squeeze out. Yeah. Okay, I think we've got that. So there's still a whole load of small investors that need to be squeezed out. And I think it's been interesting to watch journalists do mental maths as well. Um, the list yeah. is, is we're all all known for our number skills. Okay, let's park that for a moment. Let's move on. Uh, this isn't the only deal at Hamburg this year. In June, Costco Shipping Ports, uh, CSPL, secured an interest of 24.99% uh, in HHLA's container terminal, Tolerort. This is CTT, if you like your acronyms. This stake is lower than the 35% originally planned, which ran into a bit of political opposition in Germany, which I know you know a lot more about than me, Sebastian. But this deal was originally proposed in 2021, but objections were raised uh, and in, from cabinet members and security authorities declared the facility as, I quote, critical infrastructure, meaning the acquisition could have faced various restrictions. So Sebastian, given this pushback, why did this deal go through? And were you, were you surprised that it did, given these geopolitical tensions right now between the West and China? I mean, this must have gone right to the top of the German government, did it? Yeah, and it did. And if they had, would have gotten this deal through a bit earlier, then it wouldn't have been a matter at all. Because they just got into this timely surroundings that China and dependency on China became such a big issue, right? If, if it had happened, let's say, a, a year earlier, Nobody would have talked about it. Everybody would have probably applauded the deal and said, well, great that you get a container line to get involved in the terminal there. But it became a very big issue. Um, there were so many harbor experts, and this is ironically meaning. I mean, everybody had a view on it then and a lot of discussion on that and everything. But eventually, I would say that it really went up to the top of the German government, to Chancellor Olaf Scholz. And Maybe our, our listeners don't know. He's from Hamburg. He used to be the mayor of Hamburg. So he has some knowledge of the matter and some dedication to this whole issue and everything. And eventually, probably it was maybe him really getting it through because our minister of economy, he was opposed to the deal. A lot of other people were in the government were opposed to the deal. And yeah, well, eventually with this lower stake, which is uh, now taken by, by Costco, it eventually went through. Did Chancellor Schultz explain why he was in favor of the deal? No, 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 not openly. Maybe some listeners know him. He's very, always takes himself more in the, in the background, not very outspoken and not explaining everything. And uh, well, so eventually, I mean, the German government said, well, with this, with this compromise and, and Costco taking a lower stake in, in the terminal, then it, it could go through, and it, it did. So that's, that's the end of the story, pretty much. If the MSC deal goes through, then does this mean that there'll also be a co-shareholder in the Tolerate terminal? No, 
although I guess nobody really knows. I mean, I think it's how you see it, right? As much as we know, it's an independent company. Like every terminal at HHLA is kind of an independent company. It has its own managing director, all that kind of stuff. Okay. But on top of that, of course, it's a holding, the HHLA holding. And yeah, it depends how you see it. If you are a big shareholder in the holding company, are you also having a share in the terminals? It's hard to say, actually. We would get into the deepest parts of, I don't know, company law, I guess. And uh, that's not my field of expertise, actually. Let's widen this out slightly. We've got Hapag Lloyds invested in Yard of Acer. Maersk has a stake at NTB Terminal at Bremerhaven. Obviously, we've just talked about Costco and MSC. This is line sort of marking their territory. Does this help, help Germany's ports be more competitive in Europe? Or does it increase competition between Germany's ports for this traffic? Or does it just secure this capacity for the carriers? I mean, what's your take on this, guys? Well, that's the big question, isn't it? I mean, it's interesting what, listening to what Sebastian was saying earlier on about that they felt that the need to sell Harlow was sort of predicated on the belief that Hamburg needed to become more competitive. Because when you look at it from a sort of line and network serving Europe type of perspective, it seems to me that a lot of Hamburg's problems are structural. You know, its previous position, say, as a gateway to Eastern Europe has gradually been eroded by the building of new facilities such as Gdansk in the Baltic Sea, for example. So there's been, um, there are challenges that it faces that are outside its control, I think is what I'm trying to say here. And the, the market environment has just changed, right? With the, with the real big ships coming up. Are the ports able to take these big ships? Well, now, as I mentioned in the beginning, they are able to do that, but there are still some limitations to that, I would say, which ports like Rotterdam or Antwerp don't have because they don't have these draft issues, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, on the other hand, I think it always depends on the strategies of the liner companies. How are they going to build their networks, all that kind of stuff? ports or gateway ports. It's an ever-changing situation, I think. And the, and the ports, in a, in a certain way, are always just lagging behind. They just have to adjust to new situations all the time. And I think very big ports like Rotterdam and Antwerp, I guess, have certain competitive advantage because they are so big. And uh, it's also the only ports in their respective countries. Port of Amsterdam, for example, is not a real big issue in container shipping anymore. And in Germany, as I mentioned, we had still have like at least two, maybe three big container ports in the, in the North Sea, right? Exactly. I mean, and Belgium, you mentioned Antwerp, of course, you did have Zabruca there, but that's actually merged with Antwerp to resolve that very situation. Exactly. I, I mean, it seems to me that the key difference when you compare Antwerp and Rotterdam with Hamburg is that Antwerp and Rotterdam have very big concerts. You've got real carrier controlled facilities there, such as take MSC, for example, you know, it's, it, it accounts for about half of Antwerp's throughput. It's been a massive base for MSC. Whereas Hamburg has very much been a common user model. And I assume that the question that is unanswered in the minds of other carriers is whether it will still follow that sort of common user model. I, mean, I think go back, I was saying just before we came on air, Sebastian, we had a great interview that you did with Angela Titzrat who's the chief executive of Harlow, which one of the things there, you know, there's a lot of stressing of the word neutrality. If you did a control <laughs> F thing on that article and put in neutrality, I bet it's like one of the most common words there. What do you think going forward? Do you think it'll manage to maintain that? 
Yeah, I mean, our overall neutrality, I think, is, is very important for all the ports, right? Just because the carriers have a certain dedicated terminal in one of the ports. I mean, that's what they always stress with regard to the HHLL deal and, and MSC. Even if MSC takes a stake in the holding company, other liner companies can still be customers at the terminals of the, of the company. And I think it's overall, it's, it's not different like that in, in other ports. But on the other hand, it's very obvious that all the liner companies are very much looking into these dedicated terminals. Take Hapag Lloyd. They opened up a terminal division now in Rotterdam. They invested in a lot of terminals these days all over the, the place pretty much. I think one invested into a terminal in Rotterdam just recently. So it's, it's a clear strategy or a, a clear path that the liner companies are really trying to control their networks through a dedicated terminals, right? Have you got any views, either of you, on how these deals affect ocean freight buyers or port service companies around the ports themselves? Is this good for competition from the freight buyer's point of view, for example? I think it's hard to say, actually, because, I mean, the, the big suggestion behind this is that, well, we have, a, we have a fluently running network then as a line of company. And for you as a cargo buyer, it's going to be easier. It's going to be more fluent. It's going to be faster, all these kind of things. It's kind of this, this integrator approach Maersk is, is doing very much. And on the other hand, of course, what we always hear is that cargo owners don't want to put all the eggs into one basket. I mean, it's an old saying, and they just want a variety of options of ports, of terminal handling companies, of liner shipping companies, all that kind of stuff. And uh, at the moment, I would say that the pass is more into consolidation, right? And it has to be seen what comes out of that, actually, if it's going to be better for the cargo owners or if it's in disadvantage. Yeah, I mean, I, the conversations that I've had with shippers in the past and their relationship to ports, which is always one or two steps removed, right? They've got their freight forwarder and they've got the ocean line typically in in europe you know the freight forward would sit between the shipper and the ocean carrier and then there's the port which really just deals with the ocean carrier and so when you've sort of got supply chain congestion you've got port congestion and stuff like that the familiar complaint is that for, it's just a black hole for shippers right if their cargo is, is locked up in a port due to congestion they don't know they don't know where the container is they're just told by the carrier it's stuck in the port and that lack of transparency gives the carriers a certain leeway, right, in terms of basically being able to shift the blame if things aren't going well. So I do wonder whether if you've got like an integrated thing, you're the carrier, you're going into your own terminal, will it create more transparency <laughs> for forwarders? You know, my box is with MSC. It's going through an MSC terminal. It's going through an MSC terminal onto an MSC-owned train, and it's still not where it should, should have been. I guess proof will be in the pudding. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be seen if this promise really turns out, if the liner companies want to give some more insight and some more information to the forwarders and the freight owners. Well, we'll see. I did look at this from a liner strategy point of view and also a regulatory point of view with Jan Tiedemann at Alpha Liner. So stay with me, guys, but we'll go to Jan's interview. Uh, and I started by asking him, what would MSE going into Hamburg and extending its joint venture at Bremerhaven mean for the carrier in terms of its network options in the future and how it uses that capacity but also secondly whether these moves are part of the groundwork for going solo outside of its 2m alliance with mask maybe it is uh, one puzzle piece towards uh, msc as a standalone carrier but it's by no means the only one but first of all when 
MSC will be a partial shareholder in HHLA. All of the terminals here in Hamburg will remain common user. Nothing is going to be MSC dedicated. The situation is uh, quite different in Bremerhaven, where MSC, together with Eurogate, controls three terminals, and the one they control is an MSC dedicated terminal. So I think there is uh, scope for both. In Hamburg, it will be a lot about uh, hinterland traffic, uh, rail connections. That's something which Hamburg is very strong at. And at the same time, so far, MSC has been very, very strong and very focused on Antwerp, which is really their key port in Europe. And probably it's going to remain that way to a degree. But we have seen in recent years that MSC has taken a more broad approach also investing into uh, terminals in La Havre, building a new terminal together with Hutchinson or a renovated terminal in Rotterdam. So we can clearly see that MSC is moving away from this sole focus almost on Antwerp, which will still remain important with them, to a broader distribution or a broader network of terminal assets uh, across the northern range. So Jan, are you, are you thinking that MSC moves to a dual transshipment model in the Hamburg-La Havre range? And if so, what does that mean for Hamburg's transshipment business? Or, or will Hamburg win out over Bremerhaven? Uh, I don't think that they will move to, to a dual uh, transshipment role. I, I, it has always been the case that MSC has focused a lot of transshipment into Antwerp, but they have offered for a long time already uh, transshipment con- connections, for example, towards uh, part of the UK and parts of Ireland via uh, via the Havre, but also via Rotterdam. So I don't think that there is a, a competition. Of course, there is some competition between the ports when it comes to transshipment, but especially Hamburg, that's not so much a port that you would call for transshipment. Uh, Hamburg as a whole has lost a lot of transshipment uh, business in recent years, not so much to, towards other ports in the northern range, but simply because carriers have started uh, serving the core transshipment market in Hamburg, which is the Baltic Sea, directly with deep sea services. So what happens is um, that instead of uh, loading cargo from a mainliner onto a feeder ship and uh, carrying it to the Baltic Sea, is that uh, the deep sea ship goes directly to the Baltic Sea or you transship between deep sea vessels uh, because one of your services, deep sea services, is reaching far into the Baltic. And frankly, that you don't only do in, in Northern Europe. Uh, it's quite funny if you see MSC, they are doing a lot of reshuffling between deep sea services. For example, in the Red Sea at King Abdullah port, which uh, takes cargo from, say, an Asia Europe loop, which ends in Hamburg or Bremerhaven, onto a, an India Northern Europe loop, which extends into the Baltic. And that's where Hamburg has lost a lot of transshipment in the past. And then also, of course, the Russia embargo, because Russia was one of the key ports for Hamburg transshipment. We heard from Gavin a bit earlier, Jan, that one of the big draws for Hamburg, for any any of the container lines, is it, as you just mentioned as well, is its hinterland connections, particularly the rail services. Do you think that's MSC's thinking too? Yes, uh, of course, I do believe that MSC is traditionally more than maybe some others. An ocean carrier with a strong focus on the vessels, because historically, Gianluigi Ponte, he's a captain. So of all shipping lines, MSA has always been the most shipping line. And of course, they are now, with all their money, and fair enough, all of the major carriers have earned a lot of money. They're trying to strategically build hinterland networks, buy into land, inland terminals, expand into, into rail transport, which MSC already has a lot of, especially in southern Europe. So that's clearly one focus. 
But it's not only hinterland connections from Hamburg. One thing uh, you have to consider is that Hamburg is traditionally a port, which is very, very strong in local cargo. So maybe up to 40% of cargo that uh, comes into Hamburg is actually destined for places which are within an hour of trucking in and around Hamburg itself. There's huge logistics parks, there's industry, there's a lot of consumers in the Hamburg region themselves. That's something which ports like, for example, uh, Wilhelmshaven or Bremerhaven don't have. It's a lot also about local and regional volumes in the region. So there's that captive traffic. Okay, um, there's another big port ownership decision that's happened this year at Hamburg, and that was Costco's acquisition of almost a quarter of shares in the Hamburg Tolero terminal. Well, what does Costco get out of this, Jan? I mean, they've said this will become its preferred hub for Asian traffic in the North Sea and Baltic regions. Does that make sense to you? Yes, it makes uh, sense to me because Hamburg is, for many of the Asia-Europe loops, simply by default because of our geography, the, the turning point of the last port, which is being served before the big vessels return to Asia. And that means that it is kind of a natural transshipment port, even though I just said we, we lost a lot of that volume. but for carriers who do not have their own extensive reach into the Baltic Sea themselves. Hamburg traditionally is a port where you can ship onto your own service, but also on common feeders. And for Costco, it makes sense also because on the Asia-Europe trade lane, the ships have gotten bigger and bigger, as, as you all know. Uh, as we all know, 24,000 U, the Megamax is almost the standard on these services now. But that also means that even in big ports, there is a limited availability of suitable berths for these big ships. Uh, even though Hamburg or Rotterdam on a good day, they will always have space uh, to accommodate a ship. But uh, a 24,000 U ship, which is 400 meters long, you need to plan a lot in advance, also because of the sheer volumes that will arrive on a single day. So having a strategic access and kind of a preferred access and long-term planning options to secure these these very efficient, very modern berths for these very big ships. And that's certainly something which is on, on Costco's agenda, but also on the agenda uh, of every big mainline carrier. And so in that respect, it makes sense for, for Costco to, to co-invest uh, along with HHLA into Toller Terminal, but also because this terminal sooner or later will need to be expanded. And of course, for HHLA, but also for the city of Hamburg and the port of Hamburg, it's very simply also a matter of, of financing that expansion, which will cost hundreds of millions of euro. And with Costco on board, it means Costco will also have to shoulder 25% of the, of the cost of expansion. Jan, it seems like this is what you're saying. This is like a zero-sum game, right? Everyone's in a rush to, to get their slice of land, their access to deep water at a German container terminal, and it's not just confined to Germany. I mean, forgive my flight of fancy, but I'm thinking sort of 19th century imperialism where European nations rush to draw their colour on the map. Is this what we're seeing at the moment with the container lines and German ports and or European ports? It's not a specifically German thing or European thing. It's happening all over the world. Um, the container lines have earned a lot of money in the recent years, and they have realised that the container ship order book now stands at 8 million TU, about 30% of the global fleet. We have a very large order book. New ships will be coming in. Uh, I don't think we need a lot more ships than we already have on order. But still, if you want it, you could go to a shipyard, you could negotiate, you have the money. The vessel capacity is something which you can get 
easily in inverted commas and you can have the ships in a few years down the line. And maybe the big ocean carriers realized that port infrastructure might be one of the next bottlenecks. If, if you think, for example, you're in, in the greater New York region, you can order big ships which can sail into New York and you can have them in three years. But if container terminals in New York are capacity constrained, good luck trying to build a new container terminal uh, somewhere close to Manhattan that's going to be operational in three years. We're talking about planning processes, uh, stakeholder involvement. It's going to take you 10, probably realistically even 20 years in Europe or in developed economies to build a new container terminal from scratch. So with all the money that's floating around, of course, uh, carriers are trying to strategically invest in what they see as maybe the next bottleneck. Do you think there's also an element of geopolitics to this? People need to get these investments in place now in case maybe if things deteriorate, relationships between maybe the US and China or Europe and China, maybe they deteriorate down the road. And there was obviously there was quite a lot of political kickback, as we discussed earlier on this podcast, over Costco's ownership of a stake at Hamburg. But across Europe, according to Alpha Liner research, Chinese investments, obviously they're across all sorts of industry, but you guys have found that China state-owned companies hold stakes now in 30, what, 31 European ports and, and they own Piraeus in Greece outright. Do you think this will continue or is this a race against time for, maybe for Chinese carriers particularly? But I guess the inverse is also true. If you're a European carrier and you're trying to invest somewhere, which maybe in China, where Europe might have a deteriorating political relationship with that country. Yes, obviously. Well, I think there is a difference between uh, private sector companies like uh, MSC and, and then state-owned companies like Costco. Of course, there's a lot more scrutiny because when Costco invests somewhere, there will always be the question, is there a hidden political agenda behind that? And I think we have to differentiate. There are certainly countries where not only Costco, but where the Chinese are investing and where whatever they do will also give them a bit of political influence and clout, and they will have a seat at the table when decisions are made, especially in developing countries where the country itself goes into a lot of debt with the Chinese, for example, to finance a port expansion scheme. In Europe, that's uh, not so much the case, and I can only speak for Hamburg because that's my local port here. Um, in Hamburg, we have a, a very long working history with, with Costco. Costco has been a very reliable partner who's talking to the port of Hamburg and the stakeholders in the port of Hamburg on, on eye level, actually, for, I think, about 40 years since the first Costco ship came to Hamburg. And, of course, it makes sense to build on these good relationships and make Costco a stakeholder, especially with 24.9%. Uh, which means they will not have uh, a seat at the board. They will not be able to influence long-term strategic decisions. And nevertheless, they will be uh, on board with that terminal and they will be invested in it. I think that's a good thing. But clearly, we have to differentiate and we have to see it on, on a case-by-case -case basis. There are certainly ports where the Chinese have a very strong, even dominant role. Pireos might be one example. Uh, and people might have questions about that. And people might have their reservations about what Costco has done in Pireos. Maybe I have these myself, but at the same time, we also have to acknowledge that Costco has taken Pireos from a very small port into one of the big ones in Europe and the Met specifically. So it's a double-edged sword. I was just in Trilanka, actually. I went down to Hamburg and Totoport, and um, there's definitely a lot of resistance or resentment of Chinese involvement in the economy, whether that's right or wrong in Sri Lanka. Just changing Tachyan. We've got big changes to European regulations next year with the European Commission 
firstly decided not to renew liner shipping's exemption from competition rules in October. And then we've also got this forthcoming emissions trading system, which starts taking effect next, well, in January, in fact. These new regulations, plus these changes in ownership in German ports, I mean, I think the first two possibly are way heavier than the, the latter point. But that's all a lot of moving parts for carrier network planners to consider for 2024. It's quite a lot of upheaval. How do you think they'll approach this? Are we looking at big changes for shippers and forwarders and, and users of container shipping next year? So the answer has two parts. The first answer is no. And the second answer is I don't know. But more specifically, I believe that all the the talk about the the block the end of the block exemption, that's that's overblown because many of the or actually most, if not all, of the big liner shipping alliances and corporations they are not falling under the scope of that exemption. You know, they have gathered individual permission and individual okay from the regulators, be it in Europe, be it in China, be it the FMC in the United States. So that will have zero effect. Um, nevertheless, the, the alliances are changing. There might be different reasons for that. One of the reasons might be that uh, certain carriers have reached sufficient scale now, after all, to, to stand alone. And but apart from that, I think the end of the block exemption is, for most parts of liner shipping, actually a non-event. So makes no difference. The second thing is the European carbon trading and emissions scheme. Yes, that will certainly have an effect because it's an additional cost. I think for the time being, carriers are still in a wait and see, taking a wait and see approach. Some have now announced surcharges, so the European carbon tax will, at the end of the day, just be a surcharge like like a canal due or a bunker surcharge or a currency adjustment factor or whatever the carriers are, are slapping on top of the, the freight rate. Nevertheless, it will have some effect because in the long run, the shipping lines will try to optimize their network toward paying as little of this carbon levy as possible. How exactly that plays out, whether it makes sense to consolidate services to first go into certain intermediate ports and then go into Hamburg rather than go from Asia to, to Hamburg or Rotterdam nonstop so that the, the entire voyage is, is under this carbon tax. That remains to be seen. There's so many little screws and levers that need to be moved around. Uh, I don't think it's, it's easy to predict what will happen. I think that very early on, January, February, the effect will be quite limited. We will be in a slow period anyway. And then the networks will slowly evolve to, to adapt to this. And then, of course, it's a question of, of, of the price. How price sensitive will the customer be? Will these additional 20, 30, 40 euros, which will be slapped onto the base fare or base freight rate for, for the container, will these have a big effect or will the cargo owners just shrug it off? Um, in relation, it's not a lot of money we're talking about. Initially, in relation to the freight rate, we have witnessed over the past years, we are on some trades from freight rates which peaked at $10,000. We're down to $1,500. So if somebody adds another $50 to that, right now I expect the effect to be very limited in the short term. Jan Tiedemann, Chief Analyst at Alpha Liner. Thanks for joining me on the Lodestar podcast once again. Thanks for having me, Mike. Sebastian, we heard there um, about Chinese investments in, in European ports. What's the view in Germany on Chinese investments in general, would you, you say, or maybe foreign ownership? Is there a general political debate about this ownership of national structures in this more tempestuous world that we have at the moment? I mean, we did touch on this before. 
And I'll just widen this out to you as well, Gav, because this is in the news quite a lot in the UK at the moment, because we've had former Prime Minister David Cameron taking over the Foreign Office, and he's always been seen as quite pro-China in the past. So there's a big debate in the U- UK about China's role in the economy. How's it looked at in Germany? It's a very big debate, which has been seen through the, the Costco deal in the Port of Hamburg, for example, but also with other deals, with, with Chinese companies investing in, in a robotics manufacturing company just a couple of years ago. That's when the whole discussion started, pretty much. And I think one has to bear in mind, of course, Germany and Germany's economy is still very much dependent on China, right? I mean, the Port of Hamburg takes about a third of all the goods from China. All the goods that run through the Port of Hamburg are from China. The big German car manufacturers sell, I don't know, half of their cars in China or something like that. I don't know the exact numbers, but it's, it's a huge, huge amount, amount of, of money. And I think VW is, is the largest car maker in China. Yeah, it could be. Joint venture with Geely, Volkswagen's joint venture. Yeah, it's the largest, it's the largest manufacturer in China. And with that, I mean, there, there was this big discussion here in Germany about decoupling from China. And now the word is pretty much more like de-risking because everybody knows we are still very much dependent on China. And also, if you talk to a lot of people in the logistics industry, I think everybody pretty much says, well, okay, we have to make the supply chains more flexible. There's more investment coming into Southeast Asia. There are more production sites in Southeast Asia, all these, all these kind of things. But China will remain a big market, a big sourcing market, a, a big market to sell goods to. And uh, well, that will not vanish overnight and it shouldn't be pushed into that as well. There's a massive market for German exporters, isn't it? For the sort of yeah. uh, precision equipment, engineering. Still very important. Yeah. Hugely important, yeah. And I, I, I have to say, I mean, that stands in contrast to Britain, of course, which we don't depend on the Chinese market for our sales in that same respect. No, we depend on the EU market, don't we? So we thought with that Brexit. <laughs> anyway, don't <laughs> get do. me started. Well, we can overlook that. <laughs> but maybe just you mentioning the EU, right? I mean, what's interesting and what my colleague from Brussels is telling us is in the European Parliament, for example, there's a big discussion about dependency on China as well. And also on the ports being dependent on China. And my view is that there are some guys who are very critical on China dependency and on Chinese investments in the European ports. And I think they are preparing some kind of strategy paper there to, to really get that resolved. And that could even be stricter than the maybe the German-China strategy, because the, I think the German-China strategy is something in between. I mean, yeah, we have to de-risk and everything, but still, of course, we have to work with China. We are still dependent on China and all that kind of things. And this, the European stake seems to be a bit more tough than the, the German one now. I spoke to the National Security Agency on the maritime side in the States, and he was over in London at London Shipping Week, and he, he was saying to me that they've had long-standing concerns about even container cranes from ZPMC being installed in European and US ports just because they don't really know how much information they are collecting. And this is pre-COVID and pre-invasion of Ukraine, where these tensions have ramped up a certain amount, or at least the uh, enthusiasm for decoupling, let's put it like that, has, has increased since those events. Gav, do you think this geopolitical tension bar has, has moved substantially and that's going to affect how we view these investments in the future? I think so. Here in Britain, then this is off the topic of logistics and, and transport, Mike, but you know, you'll, you'll recall, and British listeners would recall, the, uh, the huge fuss over Huawei 
the Chinese um, telecommunications company, which had been originally contracted by the UK government to build its 5G network. But that's been binned over exactly the same concerns as your man from the US was talking about in terms of the, the container crane things. And I think these are genuine concerns, right? If you look at the sort of actions that China's been taking, and I'm talking it's, it's Navy in the South China Sea, for example, you know, the very soft power of the One Belt, One Road thing. I think, it's, I think these are genuine concerns. I think it'd be very interesting, for example, if the EU does press ahead with the new sort of port strategy, where that leaves Costco's investment in Piraeus, for example, where it owns the entire port. Yeah, I mean, it is both the statutory authority, i.e. a regulator. It's a Greek maritime regulator, as well as being a private cargo operator. I think the big change is possibly in perception because you think about Jack Ma disappearing from view. There was a view that, okay, there was, there was the Chinese state and then there was the SOEs, the state-owned enterprises, and then there was the private companies. And under Xi, those divisions seem to have gone. Now there's people saying, are there any actual private companies in China that you can say, okay, well, we can separate this off from the state. If at any point the state can intervene in those companies and remove someone like Ma, who was quite outspoken and and seem like a friendly face to the West. So I think there's a, a lot going on there. Right, let's finish on something, bring it back to line of strategy, just finally. As we heard in that interview with Jan, there's so much at play at the moment in terms of line of strategy in 2024, and we haven't even got around to rates. Those network planning departments have got a lot of work to do. What are you both expecting from carrier strategy in Europe next year? Was there much given away in these quarterly results that we've seen? Well, I think... A big issue, of course, will be the uh, reshuffling of the alliances. At, at first, of course, 2M from Maersk and MSC that will end at the end of 2024. And of course, that will probably already be seen in 2024 throughout the year that they are, I don't know, diverting their fleets, all that kind of stuff. I mean, they have to decouple the, the networks pretty much. And on the other end, as I mentioned, companies like Hapark investing in that own terminal networks, all that kind of stuff. I think that will lead to some reshuffling in the networks maybe as well. And third one, I mean, it's still the economy, right? If the cargo is not in the networks, they will maybe downsize them. And that has already started as much as I know and what we could see from the quarterly results. And it has to be seen how long that will take on. Yeah, Sebastian's got it right there in my view. I mean, MSE is going to be on its own, which it always prefers. It always likes to operate on its own. It always has done. I don't think it really enjoyed the whole alliance structure, but it needed it for that past 10 years. I think very interesting to see what Maersk's going to do and what's going to happen to the alliance and the ocean alliance. So there was an interview with Rodolfo Saad, like in the last couple of days. I think they were, they were unveiling oh, it was some new AI investment in Marseille or something, but he did specifically say how happy I'm sort of doing the air quote thing here, how happy the um, the French carrier was in its partnership with Costco. But are they natural bedfellows? I mean, you know, I th would go back to when, do, do you guys remember when the proposed P3 alliance between Maersk, MSC and, and CMA came along? And that was, that was all going through, right? That had been approved by the FMC, it had been approved by the EU, but it was kiboshed by the Ministry of Commerce in China. And our understanding is that Costco were curious that they had been excluded from that group. So they've always seemed to me quite strange bedfellows in, in the Ocean Alliance. 
And then what's Hapag going to do? So there's basically a game of musical chairs coming out. You know, Maersk is going to be on its own, but I don't think if you look at the size of the fleet, it's quite got the scale enough to operate a global network on its own. I think it needs to have partners. And so it's really who will be interested in partnering up with, with Maersk. It's going to be a very interesting year, that's for sure. Gavin Van Mol, Managing Editor of The Lodestar, and Sebastian Ryman, Editor-in-Chief, DVZ. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks. Cheers, Mike. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank TAC Index, the Lodestar's air freight data provider, and Zenitor, our sea freight data supplier. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon.